Hey friends, this is Jeff Wu with the Health Via Modern Nutrition HVMN Podcast. And today I'm super excited to welcome back one of my favorite conversationalist partners or conversation partners, L. Amber O'Hearn. So you might have seen her work on social media as Keto Carnivore. Great to have you back on the program. Thank you. It's great to be back. So the world of carnivore and the whole nutrition debate has almost been kind of subsumed by all the the drama and I think the rightful attention around COVID-19. So let's definitely check in on that front. But I know beyond just COVID, a lot of continued good work in the whole nutrition space outside of COVID as well. So it might just be remiss not to at least touch on COVID. Are you healthy, family healthy? How, how are you doing on the personal front? Yeah, everyone's doing fine here. There were a couple of times where people were exposed to what might be COVID, but everybody's ended up not having any symptoms or having any positive tests. So that's all good news for us. Although I suppose there's a benefit to having had it and getting that immunity, which might be something we would like to get over and done with on the other hand. Well, good to hear. I've been fortunate as well in terms of having dear friends, family, relatively safe from having just, you know, serious, serious presentations of COVID. But I think just on the economic front, it's been, I know, just very, very crazy for a lot of folks in terms of changing economic situations, potential job loss and all of that. But I know that, you know, as we just went on, you know, a lot of our work day to day, being whether on the research side or the writing side or uh, the e-commerce side of the world or content creation side of the world, we could still be relatively lucky and be productive on that front. So in that sense, I just feel super lucky and privileged and fortunate to be able to be just super focused and productive. So it, it's been, I, I would say, just fairly productive in terms of just being able to almost focus at, at where like there's a lot of noise, but luckily been somewhat insulated from that noise. Yeah, I have the same thing because I also do my work from home. And so I didn't see a real change in that aspect. But I do have a couple of children and they're not going to school made it has made a difference for me in my day to day disruptability. Uh, threshold. Yeah. So let's let's talk about you know some of the recent discussion around the potential relation between metabolic health with COVID nineteen. I think that's worth talking about, at least touching upon. Obviously, when we're talking about a ketogenic or potentially carnivore carnivorous diet, that has shown good results in terms of reducing metabolic stress, metabolic load, which potentially could be helpful for improving outcomes with COVID-19. What are your thoughts there? I don't want to, you know, over or under push. I mean, I think the interesting thing that I've observed is that a lot of the public health policy officials talk about all the social distancing, the masks, which I think are great. They talk about vaccines, which are great, but they almost forget about some of the lifestyle dietary interventions that do move the needle and can move the needle really, really quickly, whether it's fasting, reduced carbohydrate consumption, looking at vitamin D status, these all have been associated or correlated with better outcomes. And I know that there's been some researchers who are actually have preliminary data with randomized controlled trials, actually with a ketogenic diet to show some efficacy there. So evidence is there, but it seems to be not really talked about or just talked about in a, in, in, in a kind of a charlatan fashion in the mainstream media. Do you have any thoughts there? Uh, what is your opinion? What is your observation as someone who's, you know, observing and, and a part of the nutrition community? Yeah, well, you touched on a lot of the things that I would have said as well. So one of the first things that we noticed was these comorbidities with metabolic syndrome. And we know that a ketogenic diet can address metabolic syndrome very effectively and like you said quickly so you know one objection might be well yes it would have been great if all the people who were exposed had had <laughs> their metabolic syndrome treated in advance but i think that even even just on very short notice it can reduce that kind of burden before you would see for example all the weight loss that would bring them to looking like they didn't have diabetes for example um, and another thing that maybe you didn't mention is that uh, although there's a metabolic load definitely for uh, diseases for metabolic syndrome, which is kind of why we call it that, there's also immune, an immunological 
load. I think um, it's not just a metabolic disease. Even if you're talking about type 2 diabetes, there seem to be immunological components that we're not only just now beginning to pay attention to. I'm excited that there are clinical trials in progress. I only learned about that very recently, and I don't know much about it, but there are certainly lots of theoretical ideas that would make you want to do it. And one of them is that when you're on a low-carb diet and you're burning more fat than you are glucose, your respiratory quotient goes down. And that can become actually a really important therapeutic idea if you're suffering from a respiratory disease. So if you've gotten so far as to have those respiratory symptoms, it's it's been shown that actually COPD, the symptoms can be lessened if you're on a ketogenic diet just by virtue of having that respiratory quotient lowered. Yeah, I think that's a good observation, a good point there where... I, I, yeah, I think there's been, I think COPT athlete who's on Twitter is quite vocal in terms of seeing, again, at N equals one, but I believe he's also pulling together clinical case studies, if not a small clinical trial showing that, yeah, a ketogenic diet is able to improve his COPT symptoms. And obviously that's a respiratory issue, which has potential some relation to something like COVID-19, which I think is a great point. Hey guys, this is Jeff Wu interrupting my podcast for a special offer, a special announcement for you. As you might know, HVMN just launched the new Keto Food Bar and they're yummy, they're delicious and I want to make a special personal offer for you to give you a discount to get those into your hands. So for a limited time only, use the discount code JEFF10. That's G-E-O-F-F number one, number zero. JEFF10 for a 10% discount on the Keto Food Bar on HVMN.com. We got Mexican hot chocolate, one of my personal favorites. We got vanilla shortbread, we got chocolate chunk, and of course, we got the everything bagel, which is legit savory, garlicky, oniony. And these have become staples in my own personal life. I like to eat this with a cup of coffee for breakfast. I've been using the Mexican hot chocolate, the vanilla, as grab and go bars when I'm biking, when I'm out on the town, when it's not easy for me to eat healthy, eat keto. So. These are certified organic. They actually are yummy. They aren't these weird synthetic artificial tasting bars you might see that are keto compliant but have a bunch of fake IMOs and things that actually spike glycemic response. And of course, while they're also certified organic and they actually taste good, these have been tested on continuous glucose monitors. So they actually have flat glycemic response on your blood sugar. So essentially it's a, a fasting mimetic, but we're still delivering almost 300 calories of healthy fat and 12 grams of healthy protein and grass-fed collagen. These are legit. I'm so excited for you to try them and use my personal discount code, Jeff10, to get a special 10% discount. So check it out and enjoy and back to the program. So yeah, I, I think it's just interesting, just again, like not being in the public policy perspective. I just wonder why our Kind of, kind of the tastemakers, the powers that be, don't really talk about nutrition or lifestyle interventions as part of the solution. It's always very focused on wash your hands, wear a mask, and like wait for the vaccine, which I think are completely great things. Like let's not not do them, but it's also like, hey, there are other things we can do, and especially I, and I think which is especially I think concerning to me is that. There's almost a social acceptance that, hey, it's like okay to, you know, wine consumption, alcohol consumption, all time highs. And uh, a lot of people talk about like getting, you know, the COVID 19, 19 pound weight gain or eating the comfort food, eating the carbs, just going full blown on the ice cream and all of that stuff. So, in that sense, like saying we're going to do all the social sacrifice and then almost giving an excuse to say, hey, it's okay to gain weight, okay to likely worsen your metabolic condition, which we're already in a chronic disease state, 88% of us, I think that that very, very commonly touted stat have metabolic syndrome in this country. I think that's like a big miss for our public health policy uh, kind of officials. We should be talking about this a little bit more. It is. I think it puts them in a bit of a conundrum though, because the kind of lifestyle modifications that they would have to reiterate are ones that are known not to actually work very well. Um, and the ones that we know work very well, they don't want to embrace. So I don't know. I, I guess I can understand why conversation would be deflected away from that because it sets up a whole, <laughs> well, it would be a great opportunity. Uh, and it's, it's a shame that it's not being brought more to the fore. 
Yeah, it would be an interesting study to just say, hey, let's just run. I mean, that's it's not really going to be randomized because the folks that will be eating keto or carnivore will kind of know that they're on some intervention. But I would just love to see that statistic, right? It will be more of a, a, a retrospective study. Like, let's see the people that have been on carnivore or ketogenic diets and see how those outcomes look versus a standard Western diet type population and see what, ha what, what has happened. That would be interesting data set. I'm not sure if someone's looking at that, but maybe our tentacles are out there. That could be interesting data to kind of look at. Yeah, there's two potential problems. They're kind of the flip side of one another. One is that people who are already on a therapeutic diet probably have some risk factors already at play. But on the other hand, they also tend to be would have that kind of uh, healthy user bias that we're always complaining about in other kinds of epidemiology. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was going to say like that. Those are exactly the two nitpicks on what would be the procedural or, or method flaws in that study. But I think it would just be interesting, at least from a broad cross section, is there something here that could be further investigated in a more controlled perspective? So, you know, I'll, let's talk about your, your new paper. So I think if there are critiques towards the carnivore diet, it's like, hey, uh, where's the, you know, peer reviewed literature? And, you know, congrats on publishing a paper that, you know, at least addresses, hey, that we're putting this into formal peer review you know, in, in the formal corpus here. So let's talk about your, your uh, new paper published in October. Can a carnivore diet provide all essential nutrients? What sparked that? What was inspiration? Was it just kind of like realizing, hey, no one has like formally written about this. Let me just go ahead and just put it out there. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. That was part of a special issue. Uh, Eric Westman was one of the editors and he invited me to write on that topic. I still had to go through a peer review process but I think it's really exciting, actually, because there are some papers already in the literature about uh, meat-only diet, but one of them is from the 1920s, <laughs> or one set of them is about this one particular experiment in the 20s, and a lot of people don't like to pay attention to things that happened in the past because they figure there must be something wrong with them because they're too far removed in, in time, I don't know. <laughs> and then some of them, there are some case studies, of course, from the ICMNI group in Hungary um, on a very specific type of meat-only diet. And so I wanted to gather together what evidence there was and specifically address one of the most common problems that is that is brought up, and that's the the belief that you wouldn't be able to get all your nutrition from without eating some plants. And I think it's you know, it's a little bit ironic because in one sense, I think that vegetables, the only thing that they really have going for them is that they can be used as a source of nutrition. And so, you know, if you have uh, meat on your plate and then you're trying to justify why you would want vegetables, you could say, well, they do bring some vitamins and minerals. And maybe that's why the vitamins and minerals part of the, the whole meat part of your plate got de-emphasized. <laughs> and it's just been regarded as a source of protein. So you, and some people even talk about meat and use the word protein interchangeably for meat, which is really ironic because any good meat should have at least as much fat in it as it has protein in it, in my opinion. So I, I wanted to, you know, bring up the studies in the past that showed that 1920s experiment that I was talking about is, of course, the explorers, Stefansson and Anderson, who had gone up to the Arctic and spent time with the Inuit and had been going around claiming that they felt better on that diet than they did even with plants included. And I think that really ruffled some feathers. And I don't know how it exactly went down, but I imagine a sort of, oh yeah, well, why don't you prove it then kind of a thing, because then they agreed to go into this study where they would be in a metabolic ward for a while and then on their own for a period after. And so they had a lot of metabolic measures taken and there were, there were no deficiencies found. And so I think that's that's one really important piece of information. Because if you find a therapy that could potentially address certain things, the first question is, well, what are, what are the downsides? And if you believe that you can't get enough nutrition, that would be a, a reason not to do it, or at least to only do it for a short period of time. And so I think this was sort of the number one question that has to be answered, like, is it is it safe from a sort of basic nutritional point of view? Yeah, and I think it is, 
I mean, it just like relates to my own bias. Like, yeah, if I see a read a paper from like 1920s, I, I, I don't know why it is kind of like, oh, this must not be like super formal. They, 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 they must be like kind of dumb back then. But no, I think I'm just remembering some of like the key papers. I have like the George Cahill papers on fasting in the 70s where they could like literally fast people for like hundreds of days and, and still be approved by IRB. Those are some of the seminal papers. So I think that is interesting. But I think your contribution here, which is recontextualizing that evidence, that data in a modern context is super helpful. Because I think it is this, I think this new discussion, this new paradigm where just me as an observer, I, I, I am fairly, you know, agnostic to carnivore versus and I, maybe I'm not agnostic. I definitely have my preferences here, but I'm okay with whatever people's lifestyle choices are. It is just interesting to see the continued, I would say, progression and mainstream acceptance of plant-based diets and plant-based alternatives. And to me, it's a lot of the conversation is less focused on the nutrient quality. It's more around like moral, environmental, ethical type questions. So maybe to to further unpack this question here, and, and maybe just to summarize, like what are the key arguments on why to consider a carnivore diet and and uh, as as a positive, and then two, like again, just to cover our basis here, like what are like the obvious like critiques that you could, we can back down really really quickly here, so we can move on to some of the broader topics. Sure. Yeah, and I think that that's really the right way to think about it. Like I would say, go even a step further and say, what are the risks or potential risks and what are their potential rewards? Because when you, whenever you're deciding in just a very pragmatic sense, if you're going to try something, you're more likely to try it if it's less risky, obviously, and you're, you're, but you're also more likely to try it if the potential benefits are really high for you. So you're going to take on something more risky if what's at stake is really important. And what I think has been really interesting with the carnivore diet is that people are now being attracted to it, not so much for weight loss the way it was when I came upon it, but for the reported kind of side effects, if you will, that have to do with disease states. So for the, I would say the main three are digestive disorders so like colitis or uh, other inflammatory bowel conditions and, and just um, digestive difficulties like bloating and, and diarrhea and problems like that that people sometimes have chronically. A lot of people are getting complete resolution when they take out the plants from their diet, which is very significant, of course, quality of life thing. And it's not just you know, your comfort and how, how far you feel you can range from your house, but also it's going to affect nutrient absorption and all kinds of things like that if your digestion is working better. And then a second class of things would be classically autoimmune disorders. And those would be, for example, arthritis or asthma. A lot of people have gotten a really strong rate of remission, it seems, from those kinds of symptoms. And like the digestive ones, the interesting thing about that is that we don't have alternatives. <laughs> like there are some drugs that can help manage, but basically these are diseases that we just kind of learn to live with. And the third class is also like that, and that is psychiatric types of disorders. So if you're dealing with chronic depression or anxiety, or in my case, bipolar disorder, something that's that's very serious and considered just to be your lot in life. Basically, <laughs> once you once you've been diagnosed, there's no there's no going back. It never goes away, as far as anybody knows. So the fact that some people have gotten on a carnivore diet and then no longer suffer from symptoms of something as serious and life threatening and progressive and life ruining <laughs> as bipolar disorder, it really puts the stakes up high. Like. It, it could work in in two percent of people, and it would still be a huge, huge win. Yeah, and I and I think that's where I think is lost in the shuffle. Where at least, for, at least there's a no, like numerous case studies and a, a number of, and I think we're seeing more and more of these being studied in a clinical setting where you're seeing really good outcomes. And I think again, just from a scientific perspective. If there's that much interesting signal, there's something to be investigated here. Then I think a very nice summary in terms of just some of the therapeutic indications. And then obviously I think your paper helps 
answer this, but what are the downsides? What are the risks? And why do we feel much more comfortable about them than what might be thought of in this kind of mainstream nutrition uh, dogma? It's really difficult because the starting point for mainstream nutrition, everything that we know, basically, we collected on a grain-based diet worldwide. Like even everything we know about ketosis, for example, has that as the comparator. So if, you know, you could say the comparison of ketosis to fasting originally comes down to the fact that the food that we're eating suppresses ketosis. And so the only way, if, if that's your food, the only way to get into ketosis is to not eat at all. Um, whereas if we had happened to have been in a different society where we were eating very low carb, that wouldn't have been a difference between fasting and not fasting. <laughs> so, so this baseline really sets the tone for a lot of things. And I, I think it's very, <laughs> it's very biased, actually, because there are even, there are cultures in the past that were eating much lower carb diets that didn't have grains. So, for example, um, Mongolia for a very long time was, was almost completely animal-based. They, they had two words for food. I don't remember what the words are in Mongolian, but one of them means red food and one of them means white food. And that was meat and dairy. <laughs> and that was, that, that was what made up, those are the food groups, if you will. So, so the way that you're, you're starting is what gives you your bias as to, as to what you're comparing to. Yeah, hundred percent. I think one way that I've been framing this, how I think about it and talk about it is that our modern nutrition system was designed to solve a 19th century problem, which was famine, right? Like it was literally the biggest killers of people back then was famine war. How else do we get really cheap shelf stable foods, if not really highly processed grains that are, you know, don't need refrigeration, don't spoil and can be very, very cheap. And I think that has helped save a lot of lives in the sense that Yes, we have essentially solved famine, except for the cases where like there's a literally a transportation or economic problem where you can't get that last mile of like this grain to someone in a, in a poor community. But in, 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 in like the pure calorie sense, there's enough calories sitting around in, on a shelf to feed everyone many times over. You know, I think that that reminds me of a, a related problem, which is the next thing after calories is is those nutritional elements, which then led to this huge program of fortification. I think it's really interesting because the, the fortification problem addresses or tries to address the fact that the food that we're using for calories isn't meat. I mean, it can be seen that way because if you look at every single fortification problem that the, that the FAO and the WHO address, it's like uh, zinc and iron and iodine and, and vitamin A, they're all things that are completely resolved as soon as you bring enough animal source food back into the picture. Yeah, no, I think it's an interesting point. That just reminded me, I remember just as a child looking at the food ingredients and being like, oh, fortified grain, I want that. Like, it sounds like it's better. And then like, I think as, yeah, I mean, just like just now it's like, yeah, why does your food need to be fortified, right? It's like, it's like, was the original ingredient just so crappy that you're just eating like cardboard, which is essentially like kind of the answer, right? It's like, this is so nutritionally empty that you have to add exogenous minerals and micronutrients to make it worth anything. So yeah, I, I think that's like the challenge, which is that I think our still our food system is designed for the 19th century problem. And now like the problem of the 21st century and moving forward, I think is an overconsumption type problem, right? All these chronic diseases that relate to metabolism essentially are overconsumption problems or wrong calorie choice problems. So yeah, I, I think I think that's why this is like a valuable conversation because I think we need to just reset frame where again, the conversation has been so defaulted to three meals a day plus snacks, where if you're like not constantly eating, it's like, what's wrong with you? Where I think our kind of original starting point is that you probably don't need to eat that often where it's like who has the eating disorder right <laughs> and, and, and i think it's like funny when people critique kind of the fasting movement as that's promoting eating disorders which again we're not i don't want to make light of anorexia and actual eating disorders i think that's or which have like a psychological root but i think the eating disorder that i'm focused on is the 
three quarters of us that are overweight, obese are, you know, the 168 million of us that are pre-diabetic and diabetic in America. And to me, it's like, okay, who is eating a disordered way when you're producing that kind of outcome, right? So again, going back to your framing thing, it's uh, interesting, I think, cultural, sociological uh, battle that I, that I think is important. The, the, the frame in which we have these conversations and the language used around these conversations. Right. So you could use that framing then to talk about, for example, the perceived negatives that you might potentially run into if you're taking vegetables out of your diet. So if you're on a high-carb grain-based diet, then if you look at, for example, studies that show that the more fiber that is in your diet, the more healthy you are, and so people would say, well, gosh, if you remove all the plants, you have no fiber left in your diet. So it's going to be really terrible. But when you look at, you know, what is the basis of what is the real basis of that correlation? Well, you're talking about a, a diet that's very high in carbohydrates. And so the, I think the most likely explanation for that is that fiber is simply a marker for, for the opposite of refinement. So if you're eating a lot, of, if your diet is mainly grains, then how much fiber you have is a marker of how, how refined those grains are. And, but when you remove the grains from the picture, it doesn't really matter how much fiber there is in your diet. So that would be like one example of something that, that, that people worry about. Um, and that I don't think that the data really supports as soon as you take away the, the presupposition that you have a high-carb diet. So one thing that is interesting is this notion of a facultative carnivore. I think you've been one of the folks that have been like really defining and leading this concept and bringing this out there. Can you talk about that idea and, and explain it for our audience here? Sure, yeah. So often people will talk about what kind of vor an animal is, it's, uh, basically herbivore, omnivore, carnivore, the main ones that we talk about, although you could go into all kinds of things like frugivore and insectivore. But this spectrum across the plant-animal proportion line is usually talked about in terms of behavior that's been seen. So we say, oh, well, you look across the whole world and you see that people eat plants and they eat animals, so therefore they're an omnivore case closed, right? But it doesn't tell you very much about what it actually means to be an omnivore. And there are pitfalls in thinking this along these behavioral lines. So for example, it's well documented that ruminants like deer and, and cows will routinely eat like small birds, for example, or be found munching on bones. And, and that's because it sometimes will address certain nutritional deficiencies that they're not getting in the rest of their diets. But you would never want to say that a deer is, you wouldn't want to class a deer as an omnivore. And the reason that you wouldn't want to do that is because it takes away from the point of calling them a herbivore, which is to, to describe their physiology and their needs in the basic way that they get their nutritional needs met. And like on the other side, you could say, look at a domestic cat. Well, domestic cats these days are often fed on kibble that includes grain. And so you could imagine you get a kitten from your neighbor who's had like five generations worth of animals who have had grain in their diet, but that it would be ludicrous to call that animal an omnivore because it's, it's like the, <laughs> the, the very definition of a carnivore practically is the feline. So then if, om if all omnivore means is you've seen the animal behaving in a certain way with respect to what they eat, then almost every animal that we know is an omnivore, and if you have a class name that applies to every animal, then the class name suddenly doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so when we want to ask, are humans omnivores? Well, yes, in a kind of obvious, meaningless way, we are. Uh, but if you, if you, come back to what it means to be a carnivore, to be an herbivore, then you start looking at things like 
can we get all of our nutritional needs met from meat, for example, or can we get all of our nutritional needs met from plants, on the other hand? And the answer to that, I believe, is no, because there are certain nutrients in meat that are just absolutely essential for brain development. Um, and, and we know this because even vegans who who are trying very hard not to eat any animal products if they are smart will supplement with things to make up for those deficits so if you have an animal that is presented with a variety of foods and they can they can kind of make a living so to speak of many different possible combinations that doesn't mean that each combination is equally good and so I think the other problem with the word omnivore is that it kind of suggests anything goes. And and you can you can be perfectly healthy eating this way and you can be perfectly healthy eating that way. And it, it glosses over all the, the differences of the advantages and disadvantages of eating different ways. So the facultative carnivore is a term that's been applied to certain animals like dogs, canines. There are many different um, levels of carnivory, if you will, in the canine species. For foxes, for example, have fairly large amount of plants in their diet. But it's called facultative because it's like they have the choice to use plants in their diet, but they can't live off it completely and they can't thrive completely on a plant-based diet. Uh, and they're really more made, digestively speaking, and so are humans, to get most of their nutrition from meat. And so that's why I have I've been... <laughs> trying to pull this term facultative carnivore over to humans because I think it applies equally well to them as it does to canines, to us. I, and I think the argumentation is quite precise. I think it's spot on. And I think that's where when I say I'm not necessarily agnostic, I definitely have a preference in terms where I think there are just clear nutrient density. I think because humans are so smart, we can invent really, really hyper-processed plant proteins to try to you know, MacGyver our way to fit potentially an environmental or moral ethical story in terms of what we want to consume in, in a way that fits that box. So, but I think like just the key elements that I think you describe in terms of what is facultative or what is preferred, it's literally, you know, in a plant-based diet, it's essentially impossible to get enough B12, for example. And then in terms of some of the omega-3s and DHA for early brain development, it's incredibly hard if not like like literally impossible to get that kind of outcome and i think there's actually been some 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 small studies comparing development status of babies on vegan diets versus more of a standard or even a you know more more animal protein heavy diet and it's pretty night and day in terms of developmental speed and i think both i don't know how robust the research is but just from a anecdotal perspective as plant-based has become more of a popular intervention. I've just seen and heard stories where people are like, hey, ex-parents are raising their newborn baby in a plant-based way. And it's hard to see and they're underdeveloped, undersized, right? And, it's, and I think it's, it's sad to me because I think the parents are trying to do the best for their children, but they might just be misinformed in terms of the ethical, moral, environmental angle. And we can unpack whether those hold versus like what is optimally nutrient uh, nutrition for the individual. And I think that's where it pains me because that's the dangerous part because I don't think a lot of people are understanding that potentially eating a plant-based diet, which might have this uh, veneer of health and feeling good for the environment and feeling good morally, how much of that is true. I think that's, that's where I, I have the most problem. Again, I don't care if people eat plant-based. I think that's a great personal choice. Go for it. But people should know like the full cost. That That's where I, I like having these conversations because I think these aren't conversations that are had. It's just kind of like the, this is green. This is great for the planet. This is like great for, uh, we're not animal cruel. Uh, end of story. Yeah. Well, the the baby question is is really difficult and it's difficult in all aspects of free choice, right? I would agree with you completely that what other people eat is their business and not mine, but there's always a there's always a, a special question for what's happening to children because we we want children don't really have 
their own individual choice yet. So it's it's a murky area. And and with veganism in particular, there have been many, maybe a half dozen or more studies in the last, or not studies, but reports in the last couple of years of actual deaths of, of babies who weren't getting properly fed, really. And so it's it's, I don't even think that necessarily a study about that would be ethical. Whereas there have been studies uh, weaning babies onto meat as a first food. And what's happened with them is that compared to the ones who were weaned onto cereals, which is perhaps a poor comparator, but but that was the standard, you know, the first baby's first food is some cereal. And when they put them on meat instead, they had better zinc status, they had and they had larger heads which is real is a measure of brain size and brain size the growth in head size in the first couple of years is a pretty good predictor of intelligence so or at least it has an effect <laughs> so i think we should we should take that very seriously 100% and i think going back to your point around children and the potential lack of agency for babies and children i think one of the policies that is also potentially of concern is school districts, which oftentimes have low income children that are attending these schools. That's oftentimes one of the primary ways to get animal protein or animal, pro- you know, foods in, into their diet. And if these school districts are rolling out these kind of socially minded policies to say, Hey, we're going to have only sort of plant based foods. Are we now furthering or bifurcating the nutritional status of the haves and the have nots even more? Right. Because the kids that are, you know, from multifamilies can probably afford steaks and, you know, meats in, 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 in their home kitchen. Whereas the, the kids who don't have that luxury, that resource, they just literally are falling behind even further. I think that's a good point in the sense that where is that policy stance? Like, do we need to just be a little bit more clear around making sure that these potentially, and I think the public policy makers, I think are, are trying to do well. I think they mean 100%. I think they think they're doing the right thing here. But I think it's especially salient because that is like a v- very vulnerable population that isn't making that choice for themselves. Yeah, you're right. It's it's exacerbating the disparity <laughs> uh, to have meatless Mondays or to have choices where that just, I mean, it's a matter of food quality. And they, for example, you, you can't get whole milk even. So now your choices for a drink as a child in a public school cafeteria are milk, chocolate milk or juice, you know, <laughs> so it's sugar, sugar, or sugar, and, and a real reduction in the nutrition that they need. It's, it's funny, because I think that even our guideline makers will not go so far as to say that an infant should have low fat, they recognize that this is a big problem. But then they're drawing these arbitrary lines, like, okay, as soon as they're two, they go from fats really healthy and important to fats really a problem. And it's, it's completely incoherent. And although I agree with you that we care about our children, and I, I don't think anybody is really trying to hurt <laughs> our society, it's, it's just mind-bogglingly short-sighted. Yeah, no, I, I think even like the point there in terms of like these arbitrary sounding thresholds, like before age of two, fat is great. After two, not so great. I mean, it sounds, I mean, it's just from an engineering or just a mathematical or just like a physics perspective, that just does not feel like how the physiology, biology, the world should work, right? Like, like two years old, two rotations around the sun is such an arbitrary uh, fake guideline where you have this threshold. So just even at first pass in terms of like the elegance of a system to explain what we're observing, it feels off from just an aesthetic point of view. As, as, as a scientist trying to describe the system in, the, in, in a more quantitative perspective. And then two, yeah, I think it just, yeah, it just, yeah. I, I, and then two, again, it's like, I feel like I've had so many conversations recently around the incentive system being so messed up where while each individual thinks they're doing well, the overall outcome is just crap. And I think that's maybe a little bit of what's happening with our COVID response. And I think it's a lot of it's what's happening with our, nutrition stance today. Yeah. I, I was just going to try to steel man it a little bit. I think that the idea is probably we know fat is important for growth, but after a certain point in toddlerhood, the 
condition that we're now worrying about is obesity because obesity is becoming a problem earlier and earlier. And if you believe that obesity is caused by high fat, then I guess you're stuck in, in between a rock and a hard place into what you're going to recommend, even if you do think that there are some nutritional bonuses to fat. But I don't think that people really do acknowledge the nutritional importance of it. They see it as empty calories, where if it's animal fat, it should be carrying really important vitamins. And in fact, is, is it, you know, energy is also important. <laughs> yeah. And that, that might be a good transition in terms of just how are you currently implementing your diet? And I know when a lot, when I talk to a lot of people who are considering a carnivore diet or just like kind of FAQ style, you know, there is some discussion around, oh, do I need to only eat grass fed beef because I want a, a little bit higher quality animal fat? That's going to be a little bit outside my budget. What are your thoughts there in terms of one, how should people start considering building, rebuilding one's diet? Um, and then two, how focused are you in terms of the quality of the animal? And I think just like, I would say like the quality of agriculture has seeped out a lot of the nutrients in our, in our grains. I think you see a very similar process with just factory farm animals as well, where there's, you know, actually measurably different qualities and attributes of a grain fed mass produced cow versus something that's a, a wild elk that you personally hunt down in Colorado. Right. So the first thing I want to say is that I have never seen anything in all this decade plus of being on a carnivore diet that has led me to believe that people are going to be prevented from reaching the therapeutic benefits of a carnivore diet by eating only conventionally raised meat. In fact, almost everyone I know who has who has made their way through this process and gotten good results had those those limitations just probably purely from financially and it hasn't been a detriment. So I would say don't let that stop you. Don't let that the perfect be the enemy of the good in that sense. But of course, the more that you depend on meat for your health, the more that you start to think about and appreciate the animals that your life depends on and that you want them to have, first of all, you want them to have the best life that they can have. So their welfare is important, but also you, you can start to geek out on what the, the differences might be. And I think that the first point of difference that we need to make is that ruminant animals like beef and sheep and goat, for example, have a physiology that makes them a lot less susceptible to differences in their diet in terms of what their body is like uh, at the end than monogastric animals like pigs and chickens will do. And that's specifically true in the fatty acid profile, which is sometimes a point of concern. So it's been said, for example, that grass finished beef, and, and I also you know, want to pick on that word grass fed versus grass finished just for a minute, because all cattle are raised on grass for the first part of their lives. And then it, the grain part comes in at the end to kind of fatten them up very quickly, uh, which I don't, I don't really know enough about livestock agriculture, but it's my understanding that if, that it, it's just a matter of speed. So if you were to raise them further on grass, but you let them continue to eat long enough, they would develop as much fat as the, the grain finished. And that's the main, I think the main consumer difference when you look at a steak that is grass fed versus, or, or grass finished versus grain finished, you might not be able to see nutritional differences that might be there, but you can see that the grain finished is almost always much more marbled and fatty. But there's, the, so there's this idea that, for example, grass finished beef will have a higher proportion of omega-3 to omega-6. And I think that's actually true. But the important thing to note is that the polyunsaturated fat in beef is actually pretty low to begin with. So, so that ratio difference makes it sound like it's a like it's more of a issue than or yeah more of a a difference than it is in absolute terms. That's an interesting fact, I, I didn't know that. So appreciate you clarifying because I think that is like the general critique, right? The omega three, omega six fatty acid ratio, which we can we can talk a little bit about, but. If it is such a tiny proportion of the overall animal of, of, of the fat, which is which you're exactly right, right? I mean, most of 
animal fat is saturated fat. So it might just be a moot point, essentially. Right. So I think it's usually something like 45% each saturated and monounsaturated and 10% polyunsaturated. So it's not nothing, but it's maybe smaller than you would think. Most of beef is not really a great source of omega-3 fatty acids unless you're eating the brain, uh, which by the way, I, I quite enjoy. Um, it took me a long time to find a source, but the Middle Eastern community or communities in the States tend to continue to have brains for their culinary traditions. And so I've been able to find brains once I figured out to look in halal shops for that. But it, the fatty acid profiles for pork and chicken are kind of a different story because they don't have the same kind of digestive system. They they have one stomach and, and they don't have the same kind of processing that <laughs> beef is a very highly processed food. <laughs> um, so they, like us, tend to reflect in their their fat tissue what it is that they're fed. So if they're fed a lot of grain, then the, the fat that they have will tend to have more, you know, if it's corn, it'll be like corn oil <laughs> kinds of properties in the fat to, to a greater degree. So I don't know the exact numbers involved, but I think, you know, you, you might be, be talking about going from 10% polyunsaturated fat to 30% polyunsaturated fat. And then that's beginning to be a really big difference. Yeah, I think that's actually spot on. I think this reminds me of a, a meme that I think is funny, which is that cows are really good machines that turn grass and water into steaks, right? And it's like, and I think it kind of to your point, because of the multiple stomachs, essentially sounds like there's like a very efficient process where all those different digestive paths essentially create the end animal product that is like the ideal outcome there, and regardless of the inputs, where a single more simple digestive system does not have that as much factory to produce that type of uh, fatty acid profile, which I think is pretty interesting and uh, is worth just like noting in terms of for folks that are considering carnivore the first time, how much they could be concerned. And it sounds like if there's like that, you know, a quick summary here, correct me if I'm wrong, beef, a little bit less concerned, but in terms of chicken and pork, that might be more of a consideration in terms of what are those inputs there, given their simpler digestive system. Right. And the other thing that sometimes comes up is, um, well, nutrient status in terms of what's in the fat. So um, I don't know numbers for this one, but I have heard that grass finishing will have a higher degree of certain fat-soluble vitamins, like vitamin A, for example, in the fat and vitamin D might depend in part on how much sunshine that they're getting. Uh, so that would obviously be better for pasture raised than for animals that don't see outside as much. Yeah, no, all, all good considerations. And I think just talking about organ meats are awful. It is just very interesting how our food culture has evolved because if you look at a lot of international food cultures, there's such a rich tapestry of all sorts of weird, funky cuts of meat that you just don't find in the Western supermarket, which is all just muscle meats. What are your thoughts there? I mean, have you just become much more adventurous eater? I've just been, I think, being raised in a, you know, multi, sort of multicultural, you know, family with, you know, a lot of, I guess, family members from Asia. I've eaten like all sorts of weird, like chicken feed and tripe. And, and, and it's like, it's not crazy to me, right? Like kidneys and all that stuff. Liver tastes all like great to me. I'm curious your thoughts. Have, have you become more adventurous as an eater? Is, like, it sounds like you just became much more, I guess, built an affinity towards brains. I haven't had that much brain in my lifetime, but I, I would love to find more like good brain sources to, to, to incorporate that more in my diet. Curious to hear about your food adventures. Yeah, well, it's funny because you're very lucky to have had that kind of upbringing. I was brought up vegetarian, and I can cook all kinds of amazing vegetarian dishes, that, <laughs> but I don't because they don't work for me now. So uh, I had to learn, you know, even the most basic kind of meat cooking to get it to come out right. And it's been a long process. And and I had, I had almost no exposure to anything other than sort of traditional roasts um, <laughs> as what was, what was meat for me. So 
I have tried all manner of different things. I like liver. I, I don't necessarily think that liver, eating a lot of liver is important or necessarily even good because you can have too much of a good thing. But it, I have to acknowledge, if you look at the paper that I wrote, it has a chart of just some samples of high sources of different vitamins from plant sources or from animal sources. And and you can't help but notice the highest sources of a lot of nut nutrients in animal source food come from liver. So that's that's pretty significant. But and it's like a pretty cheap cut. I think it's hard to find in like a safe way or like a normal standard conventional supermarket. But when I when I when we go to some of these Asian markets or some I guess Middle Eastern markets where they have liver, I mean it's a cheap cut. Like you can get a, like a big big piece of liver for like five bucks yeah yeah <laughs> but other things that i really like are chicken hearts are one of my favorites and they're a really good source of taurine taurine is i think an underrated amino acid because it's not considered essential we synthesize some but i don't think we really synthesize enough because when you look at studies of what happens when you supplement people with taurine they seem to get all these benefits and that indicates to me that we're probably not getting enough as a baseline. I have to confess, I haven't been able to eat kidney in a way that I like yet. And I think that probably has to do with not knowing how to prepare it properly, but I have tried it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's a weird, it's a weird one. I think I like liver much more than like kidney. Or like lungs are weird too, right? There's some there's some organs that are just like a weird to eat. Yeah, I had lungs one time when I was I had the great honor and pleasure to visit the Paleo Medicina Clinic in Hungary, and they served a soup with lung in it. I really really liked it. Interesting. It's, uh, has this funny texture though. And, yeah, and, exactly. I think kidney yeah. and lung have weird texture. <laughs> yeah, and so I love food and and. I've I've enjoyed trying different things, but I I have to say that on a on a day to day basis, my my diet's a lot more boring than that. I, I kind of go in and out of phases. It's been a long time. Sometimes I'll get really into eggs for a while and and cook them a lot. Steaks always good, but sometimes I'll have ribs or roast. And I like having including some pork and chicken in my diet and fish. I'll eat dairy products. I think that I don't feel quite as great when I eat a lot of dairy, but a little bit seems to be okay. I think it's helpful just to give an example on a snapshot in, in, in your lifestyle, just for folks who are interested in trying out a carnivore diet. Because I know that, like, I think I'm lucky that I don't really have autoimmune issues or some of these therapeutic endpoints where I must be carnivorous. But when I've done six, eight weeks of carnivore blocks, I felt very, very good and solid on them. So I think to me, I, I think I would love to be carnivore permanently, but it just, I think a, more of a convenience thing and just more of a variety thing. Like sometimes I like some spinach. It, I, I like a garlic spinach. It tastes good to me. And it's a little bit of variety and spice of life. And I think luckily enough, I don't really perceive or sense any autoimmune or digestive issues when I have these types of vegetables or, or other that, that, that might trigger some autoimmune response or issues for, you know, folks that, that, are doing carnivore from a therapeutic perspective. So I feel very lucky in that front. But but even what you described seemed like quite a lot of variety. And I think it's quite doable if it's like eggs, steaks. That's like a very like consistent way to eat for me. Like if you just, I just literally will have like four, five, six eggs and I cut a steak. That's why I'm like big brunch. And then I'll just have like another steak for dinner. And that's, you can do that pretty efficiently, pretty affordably, and pretty palatably for like pretty long periods of time without issue. And maybe have some seafood in, in in between, right? Like I think that's like an awesome way to eat, and and I felt really good off of that. But I think like I also take advantage of like the facultative point that you bring up, which is that some other uh, food categories add delight and taste and in, in, in fun to my my eating lifestyle. I'm all for fun, and I think people should take as much pleasure as they possibly can. I don't think there's any, there's no you know, bonus prize for eating carnivore when you don't have to. <laughs> and I do think there's, a, you know, it, if you have to avoid plants altogether, that shows that there's fundamentally something wrong with your health. I think, I think that it's, it's normal as a human to be able to tolerate some degree of vegetables, maybe not the amount that we're promoting today that might actually be testing the limits of our ability to detoxify from, from the natural uh, chemicals that are in plants, but to be able to enjoy different kinds of plant foods from time to time seems like it shows that you're in very 
good health. And it shows good flexibility. Thing. It shows med- like digestive resilience in some sense. And I think that's why I think it's great to hear your voice within the carnivore community because I feel like a lot of times, and I think there is some interesting potentiality here for like, is carnivore an optimal superior diet? It's not clear to me it's superior, but uh, curious to get your thoughts there. Where is there an argument here to be made that all of us should be eating a carnivore diet because it's a superior diet to even something that I described, which is heavily animal based, but I throw in some plants and grains and stuff every now and then? Well, that's a tricky question. I think we can't we can't know <laughs> for one thing, of course. If what plants are doing that's causing a problem for people who need to eliminate from their diet is stimulating some kind of immunological response, if for example, like I have something in my digestive process which is not allowing me to cope with plants quite as well, then It is kind of suggestive that it's a challenge for everyone and that the people who are healthier are meeting that challenge better. So then the question becomes, is it better to have those challenges now and then or to not to be triggering your immune system? And you could make a case either way, right? You could say... Yeah, I think that's that's (laughs) that's an open debate, right? Is this hormesis? Is that, you know, a, a, a challenge that increases resilience or increases some of the metabolic pathways that are good for longevity, or is this like you're just taxing your body for no reason, even though you can, you know, sustain it. It's like, it's still not optimal. I think that is an interesting open debate. I think it's an open question. I would agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Then we'll leave it at that in, in, in that sense. I think that there, there, yeah. And I think that's like where I, I think it's refreshing to speak with you. Cause I think I, I, yeah, you're very precise and defined in terms of how you present the information. Um, which I think is refreshing in a very raucous, very polarized social media, especially in the nutrition world environment. Any thoughts on that front? I mean, I know that you're pretty well engaged and plugged in, have a fairly large social media following. Your your thoughts in terms of the course and the tenor of the conversation, especially over the last nine months, where it, it sounds like a lot of the voices have gotten a lot more polarized around COVID, politics, social justice, how does it look? You know, what are your observations on that front? Well, one problem with being so plugged into social media is that in some ways it, I've surrounded myself with people who agree with me. <laughs> and so I, I, I'm a little bit sometimes sheltered from the outside world so that when I come to talk to people who have not really heard anything about even low-carb diets, uh, and especially not carnivore diets, they have a lot of objections that I've, I've kind of, they're so far past the point of where I've been talking about that it, it's kind of hard to know where to start to get on the same page. And that, that can be really difficult. Like just the idea that, that fat is unhealthy, you know, it's t- it took me many years to change my thinking around that. And so what happens when someone comes to you and says, you know, how can you do that? It's going to cause a heart attack. I mean, I guess, I guess for that specific question, I would say, well, why do you think that fat causes a heart attack? You think that because of the, the putative effect on cholesterol and the relationship between cholesterol and a heart attack. And then I can talk about the the evidence that isn't really there for any of those links. But the polarization that I'm seeing now is something that I don't have as much education in as I would really like to, and that's about the effect on the environment. I suspect that, first of all, incentives are not aligned right because the the people that are that are really seem to be pushing the hardest about eating less meat in order to save the environment i've noticed that there are there are conflicts of interest in companies who are who are arguing for that so that's a bit of a problem and i would like to address it or know how to address it better but for now i think i would defer that conversation to other people who i think are making a lot of progress in gathering that kind of knowledge like uh, frank mitlinger at uc davis and peter ballerstead he is an agronomist who's been involved in the low carb community for a long time um, but he's also involved in the obviously in the livestock community 
And so he started a podcast in which he's inviting different experts from different fields that he knows about who can speak to points about agriculture and the effects on the animals and on the environment. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And we've touched upon that topic on this podcast about how if you actually, you know, quote unquote, do pasture raised cattle in a proper way, it's actually carbon neutral, if not carbon negative, where you're actually storing more carbon back into the earth, which I think is a very promising. Again, it goes back to incentives. If no one is actually cares about that, then you're not optimizing for that outcome. But if we end up realizing that, hey, animal products are, are, are critical for optimal human health, and yes, there might be a little bit of an issue, which is again, I, I, and I agree with you. I think it's not clearly obvious that animal products produce much more environmental damage than essentially factory production of grains, right? Like you're putting pesticides, you're having all this kind of like terraforming essentially of grasslands into these like very, very manicured artificial things that like are like perfectly growing avocados and strawberries like out of season right like and i think it's like funny that to me that there's maybe just there's no there's no net central nervous system there so i guess we can like kind of do tortured things to plants and that's okay but i think that would be the steel main argument that yeah we can kind of torture the the plant species and the plant environment in a way that is seemingly nicer or less mean than like doing tortured things with animals but again it, it this can be fixed right with proper animal husbandry it's just like there's not a clear incentive but i think if there is more of a education a market demand where we're demanding animals being trained in a certain way as we you know consume them as as food and honor them in the right way i'm hopeful i'm optimistic that we can slowly change the food system i mean that's part of why you know i'm in this business and and having these conversations is that i think we can do better yeah I think so too. Uh, when you talk about terraforming, it's you're destroying whole ecosystems. So you know you've got to think about the animal life that's affected there as well. And then the other animal that I think we've got to really pay attention to is human animals. Like, <laughs> I mean, if you believe that a human can get all of his or her needs met without eating animal sourced food, then that's one thing. But if, as I do, you believe that for a human to be to be healthy, they must include animal sourced foods and a large proportion of them in their diet, then you, you realize that you can't, you know, by not eating meat, you're actually having a huge ethical problem against the humans that you're feeding. Yep, I agree. I think that's where I feel like a lot of the conversations that are currently had are very siloed in terms of their discipline. But I think if you're actually trying to calculate the, the second order effects or the like the distributed cost of just poor health outcomes, it's like it's very now it's it's an actual interesting research question, one, and then two, interesting policy discussion. Because yeah, it's not as simple as, oh, poor single cow here or poor farm. It's literally we're having added healthcare costs which we're already spending trillions of dollars a year on as a country. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, (laughs) you can accuse me or vegans have accused me of being speciesist and, and I can't deny that if, if it has to come between a human life and cattle, I mean, I'm going to choose the human. That's just the way it is. That, I mean, that's an interesting attack or an argument. And yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering like, can I imagine a future where that would, I mean, I, I can't imagine a future where that would be very politically incorrect, right? That's where it's like an interesting, like, what, what does the future look like? Because I can imagine that the analogy would be saying, hey, in a previous historical lifetime, there were literally types of humans or that were considered subhuman. And that obviously is very anachronistic, terrible, evil, whatever, like bad. We'll put it that that simply. Will you know our society culture evolve into a way where what there's like all the mammals are considered equal, or all everything with like more than five neurons is considered equal? Like it's an interesting theoretical debate. But I would say that if someone had to put a gun to my head right now and say, like, "What is your stance on that?" I would agree with you. I think uh, 
I, I think the like the unspoken truth is that we already have almost a hierarchy of the preciousness of life. It's just like very unspoken about. And yeah, if it push comes to shove, like I would save a human over another species, whether it's a cow, a puppy. If and maybe that's maybe that's evil. Maybe that's very cold. Maybe no, maybe people don't want to make that choice, and they want to say like, I, I don't, I don't even want to get in there. But I don't feel like it should be like an evil stance to say I am a species preferring human life over other forms of life. Yeah, it's it's a very polarizing kind of way of approaching it. And if you think like you can't really win because life ecology has all these circles in it, right? So you can't, I mean, yes, we watch movies where we empathize with the the prey rather than the predator sometimes, but you know, like you can't root for both the rabbit and the lion because you know, you want the rabbit to have the biggest, best life it can have, but the lion's going to have to eat it in the end or the lion won't survive. And, and the whole, you know, ecology of the planet depends on these, these circular kinds of life dependencies. And you can't just stop carnivores from existing without everything collapsing. Yeah. So I think it's just like, there are just hard choices in nature, essentially. And we can't be ignorant of the fact that you can't, yeah, this is literally, you can't have your cake and eat it too type of a situation. For carnivores, they need to eat another happy, cute little other animal. Otherwise, the carnivore is dead. And it's like, uh, who is, who are we to almost choose and dictate again, like which one is more valuable? And I think it's like, uh, almost let, let nature decide, right? Like let, let the species compete out in, in the wild is almost where I'm at. So, you know, what's, what's next for you? Any other papers you're working on? What, what's in your research pipeline? What, what is your big brain focused on? <laughs> well, I'm continuing to work on my book, which I've been releasing chapter by chapter online. I have a talk coming up. It's going to be a virtual conference for Low Carb USA in mid-January. Don't have the date in my mind, but somewhere in January. <laughs> and I'm going to talk about hormesis, actually, and this idea about what extra benefit do plants provide, if any, in the context of a low-carb diet, and comparing the kind of nutritional framing of meat versus the more, what I would say is a medicinal kind of drug-like framing for plants. Awesome. Yeah, exciting. And then where do people follow you personally? I know you're active on Twitter, on social. You get, yeah, I know you have a a, a very informative uh, personal site. Where do you, what, what are all the shout outs? Those would be it. <laughs> I, I am on some other social media sites, but I'm not very active. So Twitter is the place to find me mostly. Cool. Well, again, pleasure to, to speak with you again here. Check out our first conversation where we go a little bit deeper into uh, Amber's personal journey, exploring, getting into the carnivore diet. And hopefully with this conversation, a little bit more color, a little bit more context and update given our current kind of topics of the jour around carnivore and diets today. So Amber, thanks so much for taking the time and speak to you soon. Thank you, Jeff.